morning. You can be seated if you're not already and allow me to transition into pastoral preaching mode. And, ah, while I'm doing that, children, grades K through 3, are dismissed right through that door for children in worship. So, how's it going? Good. We've got uh, children last call through that door, a couple on the fence. All right. Well, good morning again. And this this morning, we're going to continue where we took a big jump from last week. We were in 1 Samuel 24, and now we're in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7. And I know all of you are thinking how momentous that must be, but it actually... A lot happens, and we try to fill you in as we go. Uh, and this morning, we've got two different uh, things we're talking about. So we're in our series about being an influencer, how to use your influence wherever you are in life, and we're going through First and Second Samuel. And this morning's topic is leadership. And so I'm going to start out by saying, uh, not I cannot possibly say everything I have to say about. Second Samuel chapter 6, or Second Samuel chapter 7, or leadership. So what you're going to get is, uh, if there's a Venn diagram with those three things, the little overlap between leadership and Second and Second uh, Samuel 6 and 7, because uh, we could honestly spend weeks uh, in these two chapters. Second Samuel 7 is one of the most important chapters uh, in the Old Testament and is one of the most quoted and referenced in the New Testament. And for good reason. So uh, we're going to try to tackle all of that. And the best thing to do when you're biting off more than you could choose is to open in prayer. So I'm going to do that. <laughs> Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, the band and the worship uh, to draw us all together. And now we ask as we turn to open your word that your Holy Spirit would guide our reading, would grant us understanding, and would apply uh, what we learn to our hearts and minds today. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to give you the verses for 2 Samuel 6 and 7 uh, when we get there. But first, uh, so I want to say something like a lot of times when we get a topic like this, I have to choose between the biblical understanding of a topic and the cultural understanding. So I'll pull them up to contrast them. And this morning what I'm actually going to do is I found some quotes about leadership from non-Christians, not from a Bible commentary or anything else. Uh, that we generally agree with and identify uh, the problems that we're going to address. And the way that we're going to tackle this issue is to say, in these chapters, there are two obstacles to leadership. So we're going to learn about what leadership is by studying the things that block or shut down leadership. So we're going to tackle just two obstacles. There are many more than that. And so here are some quotes from people who we would generally agree with. Uh, the first quote is this, a leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. So a leader is someone who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. The second is this, uh, management is doing things right, leadership is doing the right things. So management is making sure if you're managing people or a person, you want to make sure that they do things properly. 
And if you're a leader of someone, you want to make sure they're doing the proper things. So one is setting the task and one is enforcing the task. Uh, and then the third is this. A leader takes people where they want to go. A great leader takes people where they don't necessarily want to go but ought to be. So a leader is someone who sees the way better than we do and is willing to go that way and show that way for us, uh, and they're getting us focused on doing the right things. And so uh, the first obstacle that we're going to talk about this morning is what stops you from doing that? What stops you from seeing the right place where we ought to be going and taking us there? And the first obstacle is this, being controlled by what others think of you. Being controlled by what others think of you will not allow you to go where you need to go and, more importantly, to take others where they need to go. And here's a couple more quotes for you. Uh, A boss should not be preoccupied with whether people love them or hate them. Instead, leadership experts say, a boss should do the right thing for the organization. Their subordinates will likely respect them and even love them for that. The emphasis in the article was given enough time. (laughs) Given enough time doing the right thing, people will recognize. But in the moment... They might love you or hate you, and that can't be your criteria for making decisions. And then finally, I've got one quote, and this is from um, a somewhat well-known Greek writer named Aristotle. And he says this, There's only one way to avoid criticism. Do nothing, say nothing, and be nothing. (laughs) So if you want to avoid criticism, it's that simple. Do nothing, say nothing, be nothing. Now later philosophers will argue the complexity of doing or being nothing. But we'll uh, we'll leave that for another day. And I know you're thinking, hopefully a day in the distant future. But when we do our philosophy lectures, we'll, we'll get to that. But this morning, we want to focus on, okay, so uh, obstacle number one to being a leader is being controlled by what others think of you. So we're going to see how David interacts with that barrier. We're going to go to Second uh, Samuel chapter 6. Verses 14 to 15 and verses 20 to 22. And this is on page 258 in your pew Bible, or I'm about to read it to you if you prefer to just listen. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Uh, And then continuing in verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said... How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, his servants, female servants, as one of vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate uh, before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the son of daughter, or the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. So I suppose, to catch you up, uh, David is now king, Saul is now dead. We are now moving the ark, the presence of God with his people, the ark of the covenant, 
And it's also God's law, God's good intention, and it's the symbol of God's presence. They're moving that into Jerusalem, and finally, it seems they'll have rest. They've got their land, they've got Israel, they've got their borders established. God is defeating their enemies, he's giving them rest, he's giving them a king. Uh, in fact, a new and even better king than Saul. And now uh, God's presence and God's law has come to rest in his city. And so David responds by dancing before the Lord with all his might. Now, some of us have been dancing, and uh, if you might have a really compelling DJ at a wedding or something, they may try to get you to dance with all of your might. But very few of us have danced with all of our might. That means you look like a crazy person. There's no, there's no dignity left. With all of your might means every muscle in your body is stretched to capacity and uh, you're just putting all that you have into it. And it says, and David danced before the Lord. Now it's important. That was his perspective. He's doing it before the Lord. Everyone around him saw him doing it down the streets uh, of Israel, down the streets of Jerusalem. And they were like, is this guy really our king? The one who's like just going crazy and dancing in a you know very thin robe and it maybe suggests that he had displayed some things that ought not be displayed in public while dancing. And uh, then he gets this confrontation at the end of the chapter here. Um, but David dances unashamed because it's a symbol of God's presence, God's blessing, and God's law, and it arrives in Jerusalem. And yet this uh, woman who comes to him named Michal, the daughter of Saul. Now, I know this is not Bible trivia hour, but does anyone know what other title Michal held? Wife of David. Yeah, that was the important one. It's David's wife who is so embarrassed by his behavior that she pulls him aside. Now, husbands will know that that happens from time to time. But (laughs) that you embarrass your wife and uh, hopefully not dancing with all your might in your underwear down the street. But um, she comes to him and she confronts him and says, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself Today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So there's no dispute here. What David did is embarrassing. It's just, it just is. His wife is embarrassed by it. Now, it's interesting here to me that she is referred to as daughter of Saul, which she was, the first king of Israel, instead of David's wife. And why is that? Because when she's criticizing David, she's comparing him to Saul. My father would have never done that. He would have never danced that. He is the definition of the king of Israel, literally. He's the only one we've ever had, and he would have never embarrassed our people by dancing like that down the street. And what does David say? Now, this should, for most people, cause you to say, oh, man, maybe I messed up. Maybe I embarrassed someone I shouldn't have embarrassed. But David doubles down. And David says this in verse 21, and David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince or leader uh, over Israel and, and, uh, and over the people of Israel. And so David basically says, uh, what he realizes is, so there's two ways to look at this. I'm going to start that sentence three times. But there's two ways to look at this. There's two ways to be completely unbothered by what other people think of you. One is to be a sociopath. Just be completely incapable of reading other people's emotions and, and empathizing with them and just saying, you know what, I just have my blinders on. Uh, I'm completely unbothered by your opinion because I can't even read your opinion. Now, does anyone want to argue 
that David was a sociopath and that's why he was unbothered by this. Good. You passed the first Bible test. So did all first service. You'd be happy to know. The second is, so here's the thing. All of us look for approval from other people. And the only way you can be unbothered by these people's disapproval is if there's someone who's more important to you whose approval you have. And so for David, what we see in David is he's attacked for his behavior. He's not living up to King Saul's reputation. He's embarrassing his wife. He's embarrassing the people. The female servants were beside themselves. And in verse 21, he says, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father that I was dancing. So he says, I don't really care. The dance wasn't for you. The dance wasn't for the people of Israel. The dance wasn't for uh, the city of Jerusalem or its people or my wife. It was for God, whose approval I have. And so David, what he recognizes here is that his kingship, his being king is an act of grace. He didn't do anything to earn that title. Now, he's gone through a long journey to claim the throne. We talked about that last week, and he's shown great patience in it, but he was named king before he did any of those things. And so it's just an act of grace. God said, this is what I'm doing, and that's what God did. His identity, another way of saying it, is that his identity is just given to him. He doesn't have to work for good standing before God. It's given to him, and because it's given to him, his allegiance is to God. God's opinion of him is the only one he cares about, and that's why he's able to be so indifferent and just block out the approval of others and even his own wife because God has given him a sense of purpose, dignity, and identity. And when it's directly from God, you don't have to worry about what other people think of you. Now, you don't have to. Most of us still do. And I thought this was well illustrated by a uh, a Harris poll, which is a national poll, in 1968, that revealed the most unpopular man in America was Martin Luther King Jr. with a 75% disapproval rating. 75% of this country disapproved of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. And you might think, well, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. Actually, he won that four, five years before that poll, and he was only at 50% disapproval then. So man's at 50% disapproval, wins the Nobel Prize, keeps going on what the work that God feels, he feels that God has given him directly to do, and he shoots up to 75% disapproval. And so what does he do? Does he say, wow, these people really do not want to hear about the evils of segregation and systemic racism? No. He kept going because he was not, he never got into his line of work for the approval of the American public. And so even when 75% of them disapprove of what he's doing, he stays in that work because his convictions, his principles as a Christian minister, he was secure in who he was in Christ, and he's not seeking to earn anyone else's approval. That's the only way you can stand firm in that kind of conviction. Either you just are just totally blind to what other people think of you, which is not really an option for most of us, or you say... 75% of people in this country disapprove of me, but God approves of me, and that's enough. And that's going to be enough. So that's the first obstacle, is being controlled by what others think of you. And the only way around that obstacle, the only way through that obstacle, is finding your source of uh, self, your source of meaning, your source of identity and purpose from God, who gives it to us in Christ. In fact, 
Now, many of us think of Jesus on the cross forgiving uh, each of our little sins that we do each week. That's what we do in our time of confession. We go through our week and realize all the ways that we've fallen short. What we fail to realize sometimes is Jesus doesn't just purchase each individual sin. He takes a whole sinful identity away from us. So any identity based on sinfulness, based on our rebellion, based on our brokenness, based even on our woundedness, how we've been hurt by others, Jesus nails those to the cross and the identity, the purpose, and the dignity that we are given is the dignity that belongs to Jesus. Now that's a lot deeper gospel presentation than I first heard, but the longer you read the Bible, the the further you realize you are into sin, the further you realize you are into rebellion and brokenness, and then the deeper you realize that chasm is, the more you're able to see God's grace as it is. And so the second obstacle is this perceived need for self-reliance. The first obstacle, being concerned about what others think about you, the second is the need for self-reliance. So many of us feel that if we're going to take on a role of leadership, then we will have to be entirely self-reliant. And I've got a couple more quotes here for you. The first one is this, Before you are a leader, success is all about growing yourself. When you become a leader, success is all about growing others. So what this person is saying is, uh, you work on becoming a leader, you're growing yourself, you're growing yourself, you're growing yourself, and then as soon as you become a leader, it's about other people. And if you were to be totally self-reliant, there's no reason to develop other people. So you're relying on other people no matter where you are, whether you're in the process of becoming and developing as a leader or whether you are a leader. And then this next one will really knock you out. It says this, building a professional identity takes a lot of resources, money, time, and energy. After it's built, we expect to reap the gains from our investment. But the question is, are we equipped to continually return to apprentice mode? So what they're saying is, it would be really great. All of us want to have arrived. We really want to feel like my journey through whatever is complete Now I can just look back on it finally and go forward from there. And what this person is saying is, no, you're always going to go back to apprentice mode. You're never really done learning. You're never all the way there. And doesn't that just drive you crazy? That's terrible. Uh, But it's reality. I would love to have finished, you know, all the tasks that I started and bring them to completion and perfection. But that's just not in the cards for me anyway. Uh, And so this perceived need for self-reliance, we're going to, Read now from Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 16. I'll read it for you, and it's on page 259. Now when the king lived in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make 
for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, uh, Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now what just happened? The ark arrives. David's living in his palace and he says, look at this. I'm in the nicest building in Jerusalem. God has made me king. I'm in a house of cedar. And God himself, his dwelling place for the ark is in a tent. Something about that doesn't seem right to David. So he comes up with this plan. He's going to build a huge temple for the ark to rest. And in a sense, one might read this and say, well, that's a sign of gratitude and humility. But there's also a sense of wanting to even the score with God. He he starts to feel this impulse to be self-reliant. He's, I'm king now and I need to be kingly. And God rejects his offer, encounters with grace beyond grace, and promises that David's lineage will sit on the throne forever. And that means Jesus. We'll get to that in a little bit. Now, if God, think with me now, if God had allowed David to build him this temple, then David may have been tempted to think, there, now we're even. You gave me this throne, I gave you that temple, now I can go do my kingly leadership thing on my own steam. We're square. You were gracious to me, I was gracious back, God and I are even, that's, but that's not how it works. In fact, if you were reading this passage and didn't know, you know, most of us, if you're holding a Bible, you realize the heavier part is to your right, and we read left to right. If you didn't know, you might think this is nearly the end of the book. Because what we are seeing is God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. He promises Abraham descendants and land... And to make his name great. And what did David just get? He's got descendants promised to him. He's now got land. And God said he's going to make his name great. In fact, he already did. He took him from a field of shepherds to being king of Israel. So you might think, okay, well, God's work is done. And in other uh, forms of religion and deism and maybe Greek and Roman mythology, this is where you would see God kind of push him off the shore and say, all right, best of luck. You know, I built you the boat and I set you off in the right direction. So... I'm just going to bow out now and you're, you're good to go, right? And that's not what God does. In fact, what God does is double down on his commitment to his people. Uh, instead of putting them on autopilot, he says, I'm going to be invested in your people for generations to come. In fact, forever, because I'm going to establish this throne forever. And so at the beginning of this chapter, David has not yet realized the depth of God's grace. The grace of God is not a temporary pass to get you what you want as long as you promise to pay it back. You understand that? So David is not 
going to ever get to a point in his leadership where he's totally self-sufficient. If grace got him there and grace will get him through day to day, he's relying on God constantly, and no amount of good works or pious deeds will ever make him even with God. That's not the goal of God's relationship with his people. We don't get to pay him back. In our offering time, we give him back a portion of what we have because we realize everything we have is from God. And that's what David is slowly realizing and starts to take on here. But it's when we look at that obstacle, the perceived need for self-reliance, that is not what God wants for his people. He's not trying to get you up on his feet so you don't need him anymore. First of all, none of us could do that. If God decided to let go, we'd be cooked. But that's not the goal anyway. The goal of God, the, the ultimate promise of God is his relationship, his presence with his people. And so uh, we don't want to ignore that. We don't want to take it lightly. And so we get to the end here and we ask, how will we lead with our influence? How will you lead with your influence? How will I lead with my influence? And in this section, we see David as the ultimate human leader of God's people, but we see foreshadowed that Jesus will be the ultimate leader of God's people for all eternity. If you don't believe me, open the Gospel of Matthew, the very first page in the New Testament, and read the lineage. Now, you might wonder why the first time you read the Gospel of Matthew, it starts with a genealogy. That's usually not how bestsellers start. But what it shows is that Jesus descends directly from David's line. And anyone reading that who's familiar with this well, understand the connection is that Jesus is the descendant of David who will sit on the throne forever, who will rule God's people fairly and justly and do so forever. And so there are two questions for us this morning. The first, will you spend your time worrying about what others think of you? Will you allow that to stop whatever role of leadership you're in or whatever sphere of influence you wield? Will your impression, will other people's impression of you stop you from doing that? And the answer is yes. Yes, it will, unless you're finding your sense of self, your sense of meaning, your sense of connection from God. And and the good news for us today is that the same purpose, dignity, and identity that was able to cause David to dance like a fool in the midst of criticism is given to us. Jesus Christ on the cross gives us that same identity, that same purpose, that same dignity that allows David to act freely as God leads him rather than worrying about what others think of him. And so the only way we get controlled by others as Christians is when we forget that. If you forget what God has purchased for you, what Jesus has already done for you, what's already been given to you, the name that's already been given to you in God, that is when we turn and we'll see that David eventually does forget as well. And he slips up. And so the second question is, will you try to make it on your own steam? As an influencer, as a leader, someone going out into a world that is sometimes even hostile towards Christianity, will you try to make it on your own steam? Are you trying to pay back God for the grace so that you can be square with him? Or are you trying to rely on him to grow in relationship with him? So not only does God provide the ultimate leader for God's people, he promises to give them that same purpose, dignity, and assurance that David has. And so influence, by the way, that's the name of our series, Influencer. Influence is not an inherently good or bad thing. Influence is whatever you use it for. It can be used for good, it can be used for bad, and so we have to ask, will we be using it for good or will we be using it for bad? Will we be using it for what others think is a good idea for us to use our influence for, or will we be using it in the way that God has instructed us to use our influence? 
And the final thought that I want to leave you with is this. Now, this is a direct quote from the commentary I was reading. It says this, David did not need to construct an impressive but lifeless building in which the Lord could dwell. The Lord had already constructed an impressive living building in which to dwell, and that edifice was the life of David. And what he's saying is, David wants to honor God by building him a big building and being, you know, an impressive building that everyone will see and say, wow, they love God that much. And what God wants is the living building of David's life. And what God wants from each one of us is the same. He puts our Holy Spirit in us and his Holy Spirit in us. And in first Peter chapter two, it talks about the living temple of God and how each one of us everywhere that the Holy Spirit lives is a living stone in that temple. And so each one of us is God's display to the world, not some lifeless building. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we thank you for uh, the gift of your word. We thank you for the challenges that it issues and offers. We thank you for the grace that sustains us to face those challenges and continue to grow in you. We pray now that you would uh, continue to let your word grow in us as we continue through uh, your series in Second Samuel, and that you would seal these gifts uh, of truth and wisdom in our hearts and apply them to our minds.